0: So, we're in Hosea chapter 4 and 5, and there's something really interesting about this chapter, uh, especially the turn into chapter 5, because it reminds me of 2 Timothy. And the reason I say that is that we learn a lot about the Apostle Paul's life and travels from the book of Acts, and from some um, information he gives us in the book of Galatians, So you put those two things together, Galatians and Acts, and you get this wonderful uh, layout of the Apostle Paul's life up until his first Roman imprisonment. And you don't really learn anything, well you don't learn anything else about him um, except for his later letters and a little bit in 1 Timothy, a little bit in Titus, but quite a bit more in 2 Timothy, which he writes just before he is executed so we know some things about Paul from, you know, one thing from Romans also that he maybe traveled to Spain. And, but, and in, in Hosea, what we learn is about the Assyrian crisis. See, in the book of Kings, we learn things about the northern kingdom and about how the exile came and so forth. But the author or authors of the book of Kings doesn't give us a lot of details about that actual moment in time in the north they give us details about that moment in time down in Judah but not from the standpoint of what it was like up in the north and what hosea does is in chapter 5 he gives us some historical details in the prophecy and in 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 the in his sort of judgment on the people of the north that tells us the kinds of things that they were doing and it's it's kind of interesting stuff so That's Hosea 5. And um, did I mention that we don't learn anything about that from Chronicles? Did I say that also? Yeah, Chronicles tells us the same story as kings, but only from the standpoint of the south. So we don't learn any, hardly any of the northern kings are even mentioned in Chronicles and none of the events. Like the Elijah-Elisha stories up north, they're not even mentioned in Chronicles and so forth. Okay? Okay. All right. So chapter four, the case against Israel um, and then the judgment against Israel. Um, so in this chapter, chapter four, the prophet begins to rebuke, open public sins, the fruits of unbelief. And now that he's treated, he's talked about their faith. The prophet shows that he's certain that he's preaching the word of God. These are all things we're gonna encounter here in, in chapter four. So, And in the first two verses, we're gonna count and identify Different commandments in the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's kind of our game in the first two verses. You ready? So, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. So, here's my question. When he says no faithfulness, which commandment probably? And there might be more than one here. First commandment, third commandment. And maybe sixth, although he's actually going to come out and talk about adultery later. But no faithful, so I think yeah, one, three, and six maybe in, in this thing. Then he says no love, maybe first, some of these aren't easy, nope. maybe fifth, yeah, no love in general, fifth, that's probably, narrowing you get down, maybe the best. Also, maybe the fourth, because parents should love their children and so forth. But yeah, I like fifth there for that one. No acknowledgement of God, maybe this is easier, first, mostly first here, yeah, maybe third. Um, Now there is only, now it gets even easier. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery, they break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Let's just kind of tear through them, shall we? So cursing, two, lying, probably eight. There, There is a commandment in Leviticus 19, do not lie. But in the Ten Commandments, which is what we're working through here, probably the Eighth, do not bear false witness. But in catechism class uh, this week, we talked about lying. There are a couple different kinds of lies. There is a lie, for example, where you want to harm your neighbor and defraud them. That's what the Eighth Commandment is about. It's about uh, telling a lie in court or in some kind of public setting, bearing false witness against your neighbor. What about a lie that um, somewhat benefits your neighbor? Is that forbidden? Uh, An example, um, my brother wants to ask his girlfriend to marry him and has me tell her a story to get her to the state park where this is going to happen. Okay? So I have to concoct this story. So, have I, have I told kind of an untruth? Yeah. Was it for her? Was it to defraud her of something? No, it was really for her benefit, and she'll be really happy with me later in theory. Um, by the way, she was. Uh, uh, and then the one that I brought up um, when I was in college that made me an outcast from my classmates for a while, what about in football when you make a fake Are you lying? You know, man, do not ask that to a group of guys with tender consciences, uh, especially in the middle of football season. Um, So, and and Luther uh, broke it up into three pieces. He says, there's the lie that defrauds, there is the lie that helps, and there is the lie that is simply theater And Luther includes things like um, Aesop's fables or on the stage, right? You know, those things. Uh, If it's not 100% true, but we watch it on stage, or, and, uh, you know, and Luther thought a lot of Aesop's fables. Martin Luther is responsible for introducing Aesop's fables to modern culture. It's his translation that brought them and made them a sensation in Germany. In the 16th century. 17th century, I should say. Um, so anyway, uh, different forms of lying. Do you understand why we don't talk about this with Sunday school children, though? It's kind of hard to, you know, you know I- explain that. So um, uh, let's, let's make it a little bit easier, though. Murder? Five. Five. Stealing? Seven. Seven. And maybe nine, ten? Maybe, you know, coveting often leads to stealing, and certainly there's a temptation there. Adultery, easier one. Six, yeah. This one maybe, though, break all bounds. The bounds here are probably actual boundary stones. And therefore, this commandment is maybe stealing, but more likely the ninth commandment. Yeah, coveting your neighbor's house or property. Um, but because it's related to that, it might also be directly related to the fourth, which is government and superiors and what's been established and so forth, doing things out of good order. You know, uh, uh, but, and then a little bit easier one, then bloodshed follows bloodshed, back to five again. Yeah. So this is what the prophet has seen up north, up in, in, the, in the nation of Israel here. And so he says, because of this, of all of these, basically both tables of the law being broken, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea are dying. Um, So I'm reminded really of, of Romans 8 when I see something like this. There are more verses like this in Romans, but I just thought of this one. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And why? Because of the curse, because of man's sin. Why are there thorns and thistles in the world? Yeah, specifically Adam's sin. That's a direct statement in Genesis 3. Um, uh, Why is there pain in childbirth? Maybe I should rephrase that. Why is there increased pain in childbirth right I want to be careful with how I say that because God says I will increase your pain in childbearing could there have been a little bit of pain in childbearing before that I, in a perfect world I really don't know but it certainly does not happen easily right the question I'm going to ask here do we need to uh, physically attack the environment to ruin it no yeah but we don't even have to do that. We, you know, just by being sinful, we wreck things also. And Luther goes on and on about this, talking about animals attacking us and worms and moths getting into our plants, just be wrecking our crops and just because there's sin in the world. If I am uh, what's the most horrific one? Eaten by a shark, right? Uh Is that a punishment for my specific sins? No. But the result of sin being in the world? Yeah. But let no man bring a charge. Let no man accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. Your people. We're going to find out in verse 6 that he's talking to the priests. Okay? So that that that's the context here. But your so, oh, priests, your people. Who are the people of the priests? Everybody in Israel, your people, are like those who bring charges against a priest. Um, they're not bringing charges against a priest, but they kinda are with their lives because the priests have. Do you follow my logic here? The priests with their bad preaching have led the people into sin and now the sins of the people are the accusation against the priests so they're like people who bring charges against a priest just with their false worship and so forth does that make sense yeah this you you know maybe you do but i don't i don't get this at first reading i have to go over and over and over in Hosea to dig through because for one thing he's so back and forth and he gets pretty deep sometimes with what he says he's not always obvious um, and then he says you stumble day and night and the prophets stumble with you so I will destroy your mother earlier in the book he talked about his I'll say illegitimate children right and their mother that's not who he's talking about here He's talking about the mother of Israel. And I, Luther, I'm, I'm just going to say, Luther says he thinks this is the synagogue. But that's, a, I, I think, a mistake because uh, the, the reformer is thinking of the synagogue, but that hasn't, doesn't exist yet. Not until after Malachi's time, really, or in Malachi's time. I think that the mother here is the whole nation and the false religion of the north. I think that's what we're talking about here. That's the mother of these people who are sinning. Otherwise, I don't know if I can put my finger on what it would be. That makes the most sense to me. But that's, that's kind of where I go here. So six, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Um, how might that happen? The priests aren't doing their job. When, when Luther began the Reformation, he as he went around... Um, looking at the churches that were following him and the reforms, he discovered priests, and he was in the process of changing their title to pastor because we're not doing sacrifices anymore, we're preaching the gospel, but he found priests who themselves didn't know the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments, couldn't say the creed. I mean, if the priests can't say it, are the people going to be able to say it? talk about lack of knowledge, it there was just nothing there. So what did Luther do? He made a simple little uh, horn book to teach them the basics of their Christian faith. A horn book. It, anybody know what a cricket bat looks like? It's I'm gonna if I say little league bat length, does that make sense to everybody? A major league bat is, is enormous, but a little league bat, you know, a little like a like a twenty eight incher you know, but, and then, as Laura says, handle, but then it goes flat. Um, that, with, with paper glued to it, and the paper covered in thinly sliced horn, and we would call that lamination, right? But they could see, and it would protect it. That would hang by a, there would be a little loop or something on a nail or a hook in the home. It's called a horn book. And it's how they would teach... Uh, the alphabet, you know, maybe maybe some basic math or something, but probably basic reading skills. And Luther made a horn book of the basics of our faith. It's exactly the length you need. And Luther Luther was was brilliant in saying, okay, this these six things and a couple prayers. It's the small catechism. That was exactly what he came up with that would fit this perfect size. Hang in the home. The priest. Would teach it to the children. By the way, by implication, because it's the shape of a cricket bat, not only is it the teaching instrument, but it's also the "you didn't learn your lesson" instrument as well. Um, so uh, the, the the swatting instrument. Um, so your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? Um, so uh, and uh, uh, as he introduced that to the people. Luther had to coax the adults into understanding how important this was. He did that by preaching. So he preached sermons on all of the parts of the catechism. Remember what the six chief parts of the catechism are? Can we just review them? So it's the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, then something about forgiveness called the ministry of the keys, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay? Um, Luther wanted to preach about that, to, to teach the, the, the adults as well. And his sermons on those six chief parts are what we call the large catechism. So That's, that's where that came from. Small catechism, large catechism, 1520 in both cases. Okay. Uh, all right. Now, continuing to verse 6, because you have rejected knowledge... I also reject you as my priests because you have ignored the law of your God. I will also ignore your children. The ones the priests were teaching now are going to be abandoned by God. You've led them astray, they're astray. And God says basically, I'm I'm out of here. This is what's going to happen to you. They've been warned and warned and warned. And now, so what's going to happen? The more the priests increased, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for something disgraceful. Do those words, exchange and glory, remind you of anything? Yeah, it's Romans 1. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. I strongly believe that Paul is just applying Hosea here to Romans 1. Um, Paul is condemning the Gentiles. Hosea was telling the Israelites, you're turning yourselves into Gentiles. So Paul just applies that in Romans 1. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Do you remember priests in the Old Testament maybe who insisted on feeding on the wickedness of the people? Literally eating misgiven sacrifices? It has to do with a big long fork and a pot. It's the sons of Eli in Second Samuel, or 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli, the high priest, when Samuel was a little boy, the, the sons of Eli were very wicked, and they decided they didn't like boiled meat. And so when people would bring their sacrifices, the priest's portion was put into a pot to boil, and Samuel, or Eli's sons said, no, we don't want that. Just give us the raw meat and don't boil it and we'll roast it ourselves. Or we'll jab it into the fire as it's roasting on the altar. It was was just an abomination. They had other abominations as well. Um, And so uh, God says, um, you're going to be punished for this. Um, I have a couple questions here on the first page about this. Um, About ministers, leaders of the people and their uh, potential... Uh, sins that might disqualify them from service. So I just want you to tell me, just kind of raise your hand, if this particular one you think would, might disqualify a guy from service as a pastor. Okay? And let's just play the game with pastor, not nitpick about teacher, staff. Let's just say pastor, yes or no. So what about a private sin for which he repents? Disqualifies? Oh, I hope not, because, you know, um, wow. Uh, B, a private sin that ruins his marriage for which he repents. Private sin, nobody else knows about it, wrecked his marriage, but he is sorry about it and he comes back. We're kind of saying maybe not. It is at least a maybe not? Okay. What about C, a public sin for which he repents? My example is a speeding ticket. I know a couple of pastors who have gotten speeding tickets. Um, Which is a public sin. They publish that, you know, in the town newspaper or whatever. When I was going to Northwestern College, I was not the only Timothy Smith in town. And my namesakes often got speeding tickets. And the faculty would call me into the dean's office. Is this you? Um, Dean, I have no car right now. Oh, okay. You know, I, I found that to be a wonderful excuse Uh, uh, that I I did. But the faculty would look at me, you know, like, this could disqualify you from something, but not from ministry, but maybe from eligibility for academic, or, I mean, what's the other? Extracurriculars and so forth, choir and things. And, oh, then theater. Yeah, oh, could have gotten kicked out of the Forum Society. Um, What about a sinful addiction that, that does not affect his ministry? I don't know, but most sinful addictions are going to end up as, as probably public. And can I throw one out there as an example? Uh, and it's the one that they taught us in college at least, never bring this up with your congregation as, as if it might be a sin. Can you guess the vice that they said, don't talk about this as if it's a sin? Smoking. That was 30 years ago for me. You know, 60 years ago, everybody smoked in the world. Um, 30 years ago, people were, today, it's kind of rare that many households, I'll just say many households, are completely non-smoking households. When I was a kid, my babysitter used to smoke. I was four years old. I used to blow out her matches. She got mad at me. She was a good, staunch Missouri Synod Lutheran, and she got mad at me for blowing it. She started talking to me about the Fourth Commandment. I was a pretty good four-year-old, though. I said, what about the fifth? And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, she had words with my mother about that, old Jones. Oh. Uh, what about a sinful addiction that does not affect? Oh, I got these backwards. Oh, no, what about a sinful addiction that does affect his ministry? You know, alcohol or something. And if, you know, if it affects his ministry, right? Okay. Now let's get to the the last three. Refusal to accept an article of faith, like the doctrine of justification or infant baptism or something. Um, It does happen. It does happen. That somebody, sometimes you get young theologians who almost get so smart that you can't even understand the things that they say. And they begin to get wrapped up in study and studying ancient things. And they start to get just, I I can't even explain it. But when they try to defend their position that there is no such thing as this doctrine that we've accepted. That you you can't even understand why they would say that. Nor do you even know how to oppose them. Which, by the way, is why we have district presidents. You know, good, solid men who are able to take a stand for the faith. Because sometimes it phew, just goes beyond me. Um, there, there are times. I'm at heart. I'm just a simple man that you've called to be a pastor. You know, um, I I try to do my work faithfully, but some things I don't always grasp. Um, gee, a public sin that might ruin his marriage, for which he repents, like an adulterous affair or something, might that end his ministry? Might end his ministry. Notice I said might. It's possible that it wouldn't. In our culture, divorce is becoming more and more accepted, and less and less of a stigma. Um, although it's a stigma for good reason. Hosea's is going to say it in a couple of chapters here. I hate divorce, but uh, with 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 reason in the in the book. But um, it is possible that somebody might get divorced, even for scriptural cause. And be able to continue to serve, especially if he leaves our particular fellowship. He might take a call into a different church body with the same beliefs. Can you see that happening? What if an ELS guy, for example, um, uh, committed a sin that made him lose his ministry? Could he take a call, say, into uh, a, a, a Wells church in Canada or something like that? Maybe. You know, if they don't know the circumstances and it's you know, acceptable to all parties, it couldn't possibly happen. Um, I don't know how, you know, and I'm not going to judge how you personally feel about that. You certainly can have your opinion. But I'm going to say it might possibly happen. Finally, a public sin for which he refuses to repent. If he doesn't repent, he's, he himself is, is becoming the one who should be under discipline. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Orleans, Minnesota.